Ephesians chapter 1. If you're using one of the church Bibles, that's page 917. If you would like to use one of the church Bibles, if you raise your hands, our ushers would be happy to bring you one. Ephesians chapter 1. This is what Holy Scripture says. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the purpose of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him were sealed, were, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please take your Bibles, if you would, and open to Ephesians chapter 1, the letter to the Ephesians chapter 1. Also a great time to turn off your phone and all its alarms and uh, if, another great reason to bring a paper Bible to church. Uh, but you do what you do, that's fine. Just a little pastorally invitation. Pastorally, I made up an, a word. Ephesians chapter 1. I don't know if this happened to you when you were a kid. I don't want to admit my mom attends this church, so I'm not going to say whether this was true for me or not. But it strikes me that a lot of children at some point in their childhood get it in their mind that it would be a great idea for them to be a part of another family. <laughs> Anybody like remember that when you were a kid where it's like, oh, and maybe it was like an aunt, an uncle, you want to be like, oh, my cousin's family is so fun, or the kids down the street, and you want to be part of that family. Uh, maybe you've had some annoying little sister or you had a dad who you just felt like was on you all the time, but you kind of daydreamed yourself into this other family. It might have been a TV show family, whatever it was, you just sort of thought, oh, that's what I would like. I wish I could just get pulled into that family. Now, usually those longings creep into our hearts because we, we want something better, what we perceive to be better. We want something good and holy and full of love and acceptance. And since we were kids, it was probably all rooted in our selfishness and our self-aggrandizement and, you know, oh, I want to do what I want to do kind of stuff. I was probably all in there too. But I wonder if there was um, 
something honest and, and even in one sense fair about wanting a father who loves and protects and cares for and provides for all the time perfectly. This long sentence in Ephesians chapter 1, it starts in verse 3, remember, and it goes all the way down to verse 14 in the original language. No punctuation, no breaks, it's just one long sentence is describing to the Christian the benefits or the gifts, if you like, that are yours if you're in Christ. And last week we started hunting under that Christmas tree a little bit, looking for the presents that belong to us. And the first one we found had a big E on the wrapping paper. You see it there in verse four. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before his face, before him. So that first present with the big E, the E stands for election. God has chosen out of all humanity certain people to present before himself as holy and blameless, to save them utterly to the, to, to the, to the complete. Who are these people? The ones who are in him, in Christ. So those who have repented from their sins, trusted in Jesus as their only Savior, those who are positionally and relationally identified so closely to Jesus, they're referred to by Paul, not just in this letter, but in many places as being in Christ, in him. And these are the ones, the ones who are in that position because God has determined to save them. What Paul says here, before the foundation of the world, remember that? Before the creation of the world, God had set his love on certain people. And so election is the first blessing, the first gift that Paul identifies. That's what we unpacked last week. But Paul goes on, and that's where we want to look this week. There is a second present under the tree. This one has a big letter P on it. See if you can spot it. Uh, look at the very end of verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. Did you spot the gift? It starts with a P. Predestination for or unto adoption. And Paul details five facts of your adoption story in these two little verses. I'm going to go through each one of them, and the first fact is this. God has blessed every Christian with adoption papers. Every Christian, without exception, has been promised a new family. They've been predestined for adoption to God's family. And this gift of God, this blessing called predestination unto adoption, unto adoption to himself, you see it there, verse 4, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons. That's all just one kind of big thought there. That, just like the word chose in verse 4 meant chose, predestination means what it sounds like. Uh, in English, we speak of the destiny of a person or of a team or of a course of action. The Leafs 
are destined to never win the Stanley Cup in my lifetime. Uh, it is a foregone conclusion. That's what we mean by that word destined. Uh, to, be, to be set apart is the idea, to appoint beforehand, to predetermine. These are all fair definitions of that word. My 25-year-old car is destined for the scrapyard. Now, in English, when you add that little pre to destined, that little prefix pre, what you're emphasizing is the time in which that choice was made, the beforehand part. So something or someone is predestined. Let's think about an event. Um, Very clearly, the cross, the event of the cross was predestined by God. We know that because of a prayer that's recorded for us uh, in the early church. Uh, Listen to Acts 2, this is in, or Acts 4, sorry, in the middle of a prayer. For truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, Jesus whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, so all the enemies of God, they were, (laughs) you anointed Jesus, they're gathered together, Herod, Pilate, and the Gentiles and the Romans, everybody who's against Jesus, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So an event, in this case, the event of the cross was predetermined. It was predestined. I don't think most of us struggle with that. For, that's, that's talking about an event. But for a person to be predestined means that God has decided beforehand something about them, right? And in this case, it's not simply that they in and of themselves are predestined, full stop. It's predestined unto or predestined for something. What's the something? He predestined us, verse 5, for adoption to himself as sons. So to be really, really clear here, adoption as sons is an English translation of one word in the original, And it's trying to emphasize um, the, uh, the familial relationship. This is not just a legal declaration. So just to to say adoption might give you the impression that, okay, I'm adopted, but I don't really know the the person who's adopted me. No, this is adoption as sons, or you could equally say adoption as daughters. So it's not exclusively to males. That's what I'm trying to get across. To to be adopted is, he's talking about sonship or daughtership, as the case may be, and he is saying that when God saves you, you are brought fully into the family of God. God is your father, Jesus is your elder brother. Kids, remember that from Christmas Eve Sunday. We talked about your big brother. Jesus, he can be your big brother because you would be, if God saves you, you will be brought into God's family. So Paul's writing to Christians, and he says, you were foreordained to become a member of the family, to become a child of God. In a certain sense, it would be imprecise of us to just say, you have been predestined, 
it's more accurate to say that you have been predestined unto adoption. You have been predestined for adoption. The, the goal of his predestinating love is to bring you into the family. And this predestinating work, whatever it is, is to make you a forever son or a forever daughter of God, the Holy Father. So adoption is the beginning of a new relationship. Justification is a legal declaration about you. Adoption is a familial installation of you. I'd be happy with just justification. <laughs> but imagine this. God brings you into the family. Both are necessary for us. There's no doubt, however, why adoption, in, in especially the older theological works, is often referred to as the crowning jewel of our salvation. I mean, let's just be honest. If it would be great if we were just justified. That'd be great, all our sins taken care of. It would be awesome if God added to that sanctification, and he does. We think that's great. He sees us as cleansed and holy, and he's gonna help us grow in our holiness. That would be great, and I would be satisfied with this. But God goes so far as to say, no, I'm gonna take you, I'm gonna justify you, I'm gonna sanctify you, and I'm gonna bring you into the family. You see, it's not just that God is, is sort of in a castle and he says, welcome to my lands, don't knock on the door. No, he, he opens the door and he says, come on in, you're part of the family, sit on the throne, just like, you know, be here with me. Hmm. What is his motive to doing this? This is the second fact we observe. God's motive in adopting you into his family was love. This is number two. Maybe somebody somewhere along the line gave you a remarkable gift Christmas, birthday, or just out of the blue. And, and your first response was like, why? Why'd you do that? I don't deserve this. Why would you do that? I think after the Lord saves us, that ought to be our response. Why me? Thank you, but why me? And, and when we respond that way, it's like the Lord answers that question. He says, at the end of verse 4, in love he predestined us for adoption as sons. In love. God's motive in predetermining you to become one of his children was love. Last week, we noted how love was the foundation to his electing grace. And here, Paul makes it perfectly clear. It's in love that he predestines us for adoption. Now, to get a better, clearer picture of this, I want to direct your attention to Romans chapter 8. So just Keep a finger there if you've got an old school Bible in Ephesians 1, and then turn over to Romans chapter 8. In Romans 8, all the same concepts are, are at play without the identical vocabulary. So let me take you to Romans 8, verse 28, one of those verses most Christians love all the time, most of the time. <laughs> Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who are called, for those who, sorry, we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. So most everybody likes that verse most of the time. God promises in this verse 
to take everything in your life and work it together for good. Who does he do this for? He's really clear. Those who love God, those who are called according to his purpose. But this verse has a context. So look at verse 29. How then, okay, so God's taking everything, working it together for good for those who are called according to his purpose, those who love God. How can God say with such certainty that he will always, without exception, work everything together for good for his people? Paul, he he uses the word for, F-O-R, verse 29. Here's, I'm going to explain how this is possible. Here's the explanatory clause. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. The son might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This is often referred to as the golden chain of salvation. Foreknown, predestined, called, justified, glorified. It's called a chain because these have to go together, each linked to the one before and behind. In fact, it's helpful to stop at that first link in the chain or whatever that thing's called. Is that the link? I don't know what that's called. You know what I mean, the thing. And, and what's the first one? The word is foreknow, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. So before we get to predestined, let's start with foreknew. What does it mean to foreknow something? Well, if you only use your English dictionary, you will come up with a definition of foreknowledge that goes something like this. To know something in advance. (laughs) To know it before it happened. To know what's going to happen. And while it is true of God, he knows everything, including everything that will occur in the future without exception, that's not the primary emphasis of this Bible word foreknowledge. Not when it's talking about people. So God foreknows events. But what does it mean when God says, I foreknow foreknow you? Well, to show you this, I want to back up for a moment and think about the word know. K-N-O-W, to know. I think you're aware that that word in your Bible is often used in a way that um, carries a very pregnant sort of sense of meaning. It's not just to, to, to have an awareness of certain facts. That's where it begins. It's often used metaphorically. Genesis 4, uh, verse 1. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've gotten a man with the help of the Lord. So where's the word know or knew refer to in that verse? Well, it's speaking about marital intimacy. Uh, the two became one flesh, And in the Hebrew and in the Greek, this word know often carries with it the idea of relational intimacy and even love. So in English, when we speak about knowing something or knowing someone, we usually stop at the level of perceive, understand, be aware of, have the facts about. But that's just where things begin in your Bible with this word. In the days in which these texts were written, when you heard that word no, 
your mind conceived of much more than the mere apprehension of facts. You see this very clearly in the New Testament, Matthew chapter 7. Do you remember this time Jesus is talking about who his true disciples are? And there are people in the world who obviously know the facts about Jesus, but in reality, they don't know Jesus. They have no relationship with him. They do not love him, and he does not love them. This is Matthew 7, 22. It's a terrifying little section, but listen to what it says. On that day, the day of judgment, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, this is Jesus speaking, I never knew you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. These people, even though they knew lots of facts about Jesus and they were doing all kinds of activities in the name of Jesus, did not know Jesus. They did not have a relationship with Jesus. They did not love Jesus. So the word know often carries with it this idea of relational intimacy and love, true knowledge, if you like. So when you add for, F-O-R-E, to know, to foreknow, to foreknow a person refers to loving them in advance, having relationship with them in advance. It means to love them before they loved you. Sound familiar? Every single place in your Bible, every single place where the word foreknowledge refers to people, the Bible dictionaries, which it's good to have one of those because the English dictionaries can lead you astray on certain things. The Bible dictionaries define foreknowledge this way, being selected in advance, chosen beforehand in love. It's another election word. In other words, God for knowing a person is not the same thing as God knowing in advance what's going to happen to that person or that person's life. He foreknows the person. He sets a lo his love upon the person in advance as in before they were born. So whatever this predestinating work of God is, it is found on or flows out of the love that he set upon you if you're in Christ before he made the world. First, he foreknows, he foreloves, then he predestines. Hence, that's why Paul says in Ephesians 1, he predestined us in love. It's why he says here in 829 of Romans, for those whom he foreknew or foreloved, he also predestined. Predestined to what? To be conformed to the image of his son in order that the son might be the firstborn among many brothers. So the same concepts of relationship and adoption are here in Romans 8. Even though those two particular words are not used, but the words, what does he say? Being foreloved and predestined, you were selected in advance to become the brothers and sisters, those are adoption terms, of the Lord Jesus. That he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And this miracle occurs by God reshaping or reforming us to the image of his son. Romans 8, 29, those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Or stated in different words, being made to be in Jesus or through Jesus, which takes us back to Ephesians chapter 1, the end of verse 4, in love he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Lurking behind his choosing and predetermining is God's love always. It is a love that motivated him to send his son to die in our place. It is a love that motivated him to send his spirit to make us alive together with Christ. That we might be brothers and sisters to the Lord. Praise be to God. If words like election and predestination sound cold or clinical or rigid or unjust in your ears, then I don't think you're understanding what they mean. Because without God acting out of his love in precisely this way, nobody would get saved, especially you. Okay, especially me. That's how bad we were in our sins. Just scoot ahead to Ephesians 2, verse 1 again. We looked at this verse last week, but look at what it says. Just just let what it says think about the words. You were dead. You were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. You were dead. If you are struggling to understand how God's election and predestination can be motivated only by love, that's likely because you don't really believe you were dead. Dead is dead. And there are some of us, and I was certainly one of them, who wanted to believe that dead was mostly dead. But you and I know that, that that category does not exist. It existed in a funny movie in the 80s, but it, it doesn't exist. There is no mostly dead. It, it is ridiculous to say of a person they're only mostly dead. Paul looks at us and he says, in our trespasses and sins, we were dead. We could not be resuscitated. We could not wake up. We could not come out of it. We didn't have some little bit of self-consciousness remaining that allowed us to somehow respond. You were dead. But we want to believe that, spiritually speaking, we weren't fully dead. Not really dead. There was something deep inside of us, a tiny little flicker of light like under the gas stove in the kitchen. It's just there. It just needs a little bit of fuel. And we're going to come to life. We're going to respond to God. Because when it comes right down to it, it's me. But dead is dead. There was nothing in you capable of responding to God's invitation. You were in the grave, not the ER. 
You needed God to act in love to save you, and he did. And that love began in eternity past before the foundation of the world when out of nothing more than his great love, he marked you out in advance as being one of those for whom his son would die. Christian, do you believe you were really dead? I mean, really dead, all the way dead? Spiritually speaking, truly incapable of doing anything whatsoever to save yourself? Or do you think still that you contributed something to this salvation in Christ that you are only mostly dead? I can only invite you to let go of that proud, proud thought and surrender to the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. Maybe you had a little kid that you took to one of those climbing walls. That's a good business. Build a business, put a wall up, let people climb, ask them for money. Okay. And uh, you... You've got a little, little, little kid and you take him to one of those climbing walls and you put him in the harness and you attach him to the ropes and the whole time your little person is climbing up the wall, he thinks, I'm pulling myself up. I'm, I'm clinging to the little grippy things. But in reality, he's, he's tethered and pulled up by you the whole way, right to the top. And maybe when he gets a little bit older, he realizes, oh, oh, that was dad. He got me to the top. That wasn't me. What's his response to dad? Anger? I don't like the fact that you interfered with my climbing as a two-year-old. <laughs> no. It's humble gratitude. Thanks, dad. When you finally see that salvation is all of grace, you realize God was the one who was gifting you with things, even like repentance. Uh, Acts eleven eighteen. God has granted repentance that leads to life. God has granted repentance. You realize that faith, right? We're saying this is, this is conversion. This is what the gospel is. Repent and have faith. Repent and believe. And then you read your Bible and you find out, my repentance was a gift of God. My faith was a gift from God. Ephesians 2, 8, for by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. What's the it? The whole thing. The, by grace you've been saved through faith. That's not of your own doing. It's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one can boast. These things that we do living life forward that are clearly our doing, like you're really repenting, you're really believing, these, these, these are gifts of God. They have their genesis, their, their inertia, if you like, in the eternal love of God for you that chose and predestined you to adoption. The, the entire action of selecting you, marking you out in advance, was motivated by, bathed in, is sustained by his love. In the realm of love, he predestined you to become part of his forever family. Praise be to God. Third observation, they go quicker now. <laughs> Nobody gets adopted into the family apart from Jesus. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. We, we've touched on this a bit already, but we've got to pause over those three little words. 
We're talking about these things as being gifts under the Christmas tree. What do you do in, at Christmas time in your home? Do you have like a Santa, like you assign somebody, you distribute the gifts, and we always have one person. I've noticed as people get older, nobody wants to do it. But anyway, uh, that person is just assigned, you know, you take a gift, now your turn, now your turn. Nobody gets any of the gifts under this salvation tree, things like election and predestination, apart from Jesus Christ. He's the one who's distributing the gifts. And just as you were chosen in him, you are likewise predestined to adoption through him. All the spiritual blessings are mediated through Jesus Christ. This is just further proof that you did not earn your salvation in any way. These gifts come to us through Christ, which means you've got to be in Christ in order to get them. My dad owned flower shops, and he had a couple in malls, and I liked exercising my familial right. <laughs> Not sure my dad knew, but <laughs> I liked exercising my familial right to go to Sherway Gardens and in the middle of winter, and I wanted to do shopping, and I would take off my, I'd, I'd go into the flower shop that my dad owned, and I'd walk to the, past the sign that said employees only, and I would just go back there, and I'd take off my big bulky winter jacket, and I'd hang it up, and take off my big bulky boots and hang it up, and I would just lazily drive, walk around the mall in my nice street clothes without having, and I just said, look at me. <laughs> Since I was in the family, I had the right to do so or so I thought as a 15-year-old. <laughs> Friend, you've got to be in Christ in order to claim any of these gifts. Let me tell you the wrong question to ask about these matters. The wrong question to ask every single time is this. Am I elect? Am I predestined? That's the wrong question to ask. The right question to ask is, am I in Christ? Am I in Christ? Have I repented from my sins? Have I trusted on Jesus to save me? The Bible never ever tells you to trust in your election, it tells you to trust in the Savior. How can you know if you're one of the elect? I'll tell you, if God saves you, you know you're one of the elect. You are predestined unto adoption in his love. That's the only possible way to know. And the only way he is going to save you is if you truly repent from your sins and trust on Christ. Now, I was too cheap to ever send away the money order to buy them, but in all my comic books as a kid, there were these ads for x-ray glasses. You could see in your buddy's lunchbox. <laughs> okay, whatever. You could see the bones in your hand. But it, they were just two pieces of cardboard with a piece of feather in the eye hole that apparently made it look like an x-ray when you looked through it. It was an optical illusion. And you're living in an optical illusion if you think you can spot in advance who's elect and who's not, even when it comes to you. That's why worrying about whether or not you are elect before you repent and believe is a complete waste of your time. <laughs> you're asking the wrong question. You want to be one of the elect? Repent and believe on Jesus. This is also why we evangelize with such confidence. 
Do you think all the Christians in Jerusalem, when Pharisee Saul was going nuts, putting people in prison and, and standing over the, the martyrdom of Stephen, do you think all the Christians were at church going, yeah, but I can tell that man's going to get saved. I can just tell. Nobody was thinking that. Are you kidding me? So when we talk to people about Jesus, we're not looking for people who have a big E stamped on the back of their head, elect. <laughs> they want to talk to you. Turn around for a second. You got an E? No. No, when we talk to people about Jesus, we have complete confidence that if the person we are sharing the gospel with has been predestined unto adoption by God, then either right now with me or someday in the future, God is going to save them every single time, even if they appear like a raging enemy to the things of God right now, like the Apostle Paul did. <laughs> and that's because this is true of every single Christian ever. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. There is simply no stopping him if God decides to set his for love, to just decides to for love you and to adopt to you, to himself you. That was clunky, but you know what I mean. And that takes me to number four, nothing. Nothing can stop God from adopting us into his family. I have walked with several families through the adoption process. It can be very difficult. It can be very grueling, especially when you're months or years into the process and some family member appears out of nowhere to interfere or a hostile judge upends everything. Brothers and sisters, that never happens with God. All he intends to adopt, he adopts. In love he predestined us for adoption to himself, his sons, through Jesus Christ. How do we know? According to the purpose of his will. So while we speak about his motive being love, now we move into the realm, we might call it, of rationale or reasoning. Why did he love me in particular? The answer is found in that phrase, according to the purpose of his will. Now, there's a lot of this will language in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. Uh, so here in verse 5, according to the purpose of his will. Verse 9, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. Verse 11, in him we've obtained an inheritance. That's what children get, an inheritance. Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So you get all these purpose, will, counsel words. What do they mean? Let's just... Think about them briefly in order. So God is acting, God is willing, choosing. That's what that word means. How is he acting? How is he willing? How is he choosing? Verse five, according to the purpose of his will. Uh, that word is the good pleasure of his will. In other words, uh, as the Old Testament said, our God is in the heavens and he does whatever he pleases. So according to the good pleasure of his will, verse 5, verse 9, the mystery, the musterion, that, that in Paul's writings, mystery refers to something that was 
hidden. The gospel was sort of hidden in the Old Testament. It was pointing forward to Christ, but it wasn't perfectly clear. When Jesus comes, the mystery is revealed. Like you, when you read a mystery novel and you're, you're reading and you're reading, and you're like, I'm sure it was, you know, the, the butler who did it. And you get to the last page and you're like, you got to be kidding me. It was the gardener or whatever. The, the mystery is revealed. So that's the word he's using here. That's how he's using it. The predetermined plan of God has now been exposed. It's now been revealed. And then you get to verse 11, according to the counsel of his will, the plan or the decision or the purpose of his will. So while God's predestination of you into adoption is motivated by love, it's rooted, and you've got to see this, it's rooted in the sovereign, unchanging will of God. And that will is whatever God desires, meaning it cannot be thwarted, it cannot be manipulated. That will is singular in its plan. God's not operating in the world with 17 different options. He has one decree, one will, and that will, when it comes to people becoming Christians, is revealed at every single conversion. This is a very, very sweet comfort to the Christian because it means that God's predestination of you unto adoption cannot be overturned, cannot be forgotten, and cannot be denied. No matter how stupid I am as a Christian, if I'm in Christ according to the good pleasure of his will, his plan shall not be altered. No matter how strong Satan appears, no matter how wicked are his attacks, he can do nothing to interfere with my adoption into the family of God. God's action of predestinating a person is a subset of his overall sovereignty over all things. Predestination refers to God's work in saving an individual, but God is able to guarantee this because of the fact that he works all things after the counsel of his will. So it should be no surprise that the saving of his people would fall under that authority. And brothers and sisters, this is why we get none of the glory. Observation five about adoption. Like all grateful children, that's what it says in your bulletin, but this morning I thought I should, have, I should have made that like all grateful orphans. We will praise God forever for adopting us into his family. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved in Christ. You see, by now you're starting to understand what grace is. Grace is a word that means free, unmerited, unearned, undeserved favor, blessing. Think about this. If God chose us before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight, and if God predestined us to adoption to himself, and if God did all of this out of love and not based on any present nor future foreseen merit in us, 
And if God made this determination in the secret counsel of his own eternal, holy, sinless, unstoppable will, then God must have done all of this so that we would praise him for his great, great grace. God must have done all of this so that the angels would praise him for his great, great grace. That's what it says, Romans 8, 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For that moment when it becomes clear who are all the true children in the family. Every mouse, every mountain, every molecule is straining forward every day. Is it going to be today? Is Jesus coming today? Is he going to show who all the true children of God are? Is he going to remake this fallen world into a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness dwells forever? Oh, may that day come. And that day comes and you and I join in that huge giant choir of singing amazing grace, whether it's Newton's version or another, we are singing amazing grace, amazing grace. What a day that will be when we finally see everything for what it truly is, when no sin looks the least bit appealing anymore, and when, when, when hell will look to us to be perfectly just in, in the sight of God, and when Jesus comes into our view, and in all our different languages, all our different dialects, we will look at one another and say, it was grace, it was grace, it was grace. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved the grace of our Savior God, the free, unmerited love of God with which he has blessed us. You know, that's another grace word, keratos. It's, it's, you could translate this. I kind of wish it was. To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has graced us in the beloved. He's just doubling up the word. And we're going to praise him for the grace that he graced us with. And all of this in the beloved, in Jesus, through Jesus, the gracious one. No wonder Paul started this sentence with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies. Every spiritual blessing mediated to us through Jesus Christ. It is all in him and through him and by him. And he is ours. That's whom you're about to commune with at this table, friend. The one who died so that the Father's will for you would be perfectly accomplished. Because of Jesus, you can be totally confident that you were chosen. You were predestined to be in the family of God forever. So no matter how things have been going for you, come to Jesus God knows everything about your life. He sees everything in your life. He understands all your thoughts, all your temptations, all your failures, and all your rebellions. And still God says, come to the table of my son. Eat and drink here. Remind yourself of who Jesus is and what he has purchased for you. Confess your sins, yes, but rejoice in my forgiveness. Commune with my son. You can understand, therefore, why this is no place for someone who is not yet a Christian. Christian to come. You're not in Christ. How can you commune with Christ? As we understand it, to be in Christ, to be a Christian means in almost every case that you're a baptized member in good standing of a gospel-preaching church. So if you're not a member here, but you are a member somewhere else like that, then please join with us at our family meal. 
But if you're, if you're outside of God's people, if you're not a Christian, please only watch and listen. And why not use that, tri- that time to turn to Jesus in your heart of hearts? Reject all your lame attempts at trying to be good enough to earn heaven and plead with the eternal God to make you a part of his family. Listen to what Jesus said. All, all that the Father gives me will come to me. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Which means, nobody walks up to Jesus in real repentance and faith and hears the words, I'm so sorry, you're not one of the elect. You weren't predestined. Sorry. That never, ever, ever happens. You walk up to Jesus in real repentance and faith and you hear the words, Welcome to the family. And if that's you, we say to you, welcome to the family meal. Let's pray together. Our Father, We are unworthy of such love and grace. We praise you for it. And most of all, we praise you for our Savior, Jesus. Give us grace now to lay hold of him by faith and together to commune with Christ, our living Lord. We ask this in his name. Amen.